0: Our scripture can be found on the inside of the bulletin. This is Luke 9, 28 through 36. Prepare your hearts for the reading of God's word. Now about eight days after he sang, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, uh, praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy in sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah Well, I don't know if you're a moviegoer, but uh, there's some pretty cool movies coming out. And, uh, you know, as I was surveying Hollywood, I'm uh, interested in how many superhero movies are coming out. It seems like nobody's willing to bet on anything in Hollywood anymore except superhero uh, movies. Any superhero will do, frank- uh, frankly. Anybody see Ant-Man, by the way? Of course, of course. It was good, Darla Dodal, a plug for Ant-Man, small superhero, right? You know, they come in all shapes and sizes, superheroes now. It used to just be the big guys, right? Superman and Batman and these titans, but uh, you have all of these different types of, you've got screw-up superheroes, you've got small superheroes, you've got different kinds of superheroes. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that they're all disguised. Um, you know, it's kind of strange. Why is that? Where did that come from? Well, we're going to talk about that today. But you know, they are superheroes in life as well. They come in all shapes and sizes. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Chris Mintz, but uh, Chris Mintz was the uh, gentleman who was in, uh, at the Umpqua Community College, a shooting in Oregon. And he was, in, uh, he was a former uh, Iraqi Army infantryman who had gotten out of the army and he was getting his degree through the GI bill, and he was there sitting in writing class when this crazed lunatic came in this was October 1st and started shooting. And one of the teachers started screaming, you know, you know there are all these people in the library. you've got to tell the library people to get out." Well, Chris sprung into action. He was not uh, you know, he was trained for this sort of thing. so he he ran out, he went to the library he, yelled at everyone. He went to another building. Everybody's just kind of walking around in a daze wondering what to do. And uh, Mintz is there yelling at folks to get out. And Mintz is out, but he goes back in, back into the building where he was. And as he's sort of you know, trying to figure out where this, this guy is, this guy jumps from out of, out of nowhere, sneaks out of, comes out of his classroom and shoots him. He actually shoots him five different times. Uh, and Mintz goes down, and uh, for the life of him, the guy had the gun pointed at Mintz's head. He was going to kill him, and, and he didn't. In fact, Mintz turned to him, and he said, It's my son's birthday, uh, as he's lying on the ground. And uh, for whatever reason, the guy did not kill him. Well, eventually, the police came in, and uh, this uh, coward went ahead and killed himself. But, uh, you know, Mintz was hailed as a hero, and rightly so because Mintz took his life on the line and he went and he saved others and was in the uh, line of fire in order to do so. So uh, we definitely want to lift up heroes like that in the world. You know, this story is the story about a hero. Um, Jesus, I don't know if you think of him as a hero or not, but he most certainly is. And there is a pivotal time that we're looking at in the Scripture where Jesus is going to do something. You know, it's as kind of a strange thing here. Jesus goes up on this mountain and he's transfigured. You know, why is this happening? What's what's going on? What is being communicated to us? And what I believe is being communicated to us is God is communicating to us, I want you to understand how much of a hero that my son is. Not only that he's a hero, but rather he's the hero. I want you to be able to see him in the fullness of his glory, that you might just grasp a glimpse of the one who is before you. You know, for many people, Jesus is in disguise, isn't he? Even those who know him. He's that Jewish carpenter, right, who walked around in a robe and gave some neat sayings. And uh, we sort of stand, uh, you know, in judgment of him. But he's so much more than that. And I want to suggest to you that the reason that we see the glory of Christ in this particular place is because it's right on the step, if you will, of Him setting His face toward Jerusalem and going to die. And that the glory of Christ always shines brightest in the shadow of the cross and in the darkness of the tomb. And so let us take a look at this hero to see Him in all the fullness of His glory and to understand what that means for us today. Well, firstly, we have to behold his position to understand who he really is. I think that's the first point of this passage. Luke 9:28 it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now these sayings refers to what Jesus had just said. Uh, uh, the passage before where Jesus had said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus began to communicate that something is going to happen to him, that he is going to die. And so he takes Peter, James, and John with him up on this mountain. They're sort of his inner circle, if you will. uh, The main three that sort of have special privileges. No surprise that Jesus goes to pray. In fact, throughout Luke, whenever he has a big decision, he either spends the night praying, or he goes and spends a chunk of time to pray. This is an important shift in Jesus' ministry, and so he goes to pray. In verse 29, it says, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Altered, the appearance of his face in the Greek, a proper translation would be that it flashed like lightning. Uh, Matthew, I believe, it says that his face Shone like the sun. And his clothing became dazzling white. Another gospel. It became whiter than anyone could ever bleach the clothes. It's so white. Well this picture of the dazzling face of Christ. uh, Of God and the dazzling clothes. We see this in other places. For instance in Revelation 1.13. Where the apostle John has the vision that among the lampstands was one like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. See, for this one instance, Peter, James, and John look and they see Jesus in all of his brilliance and his beauty. Can you imagine as the curtains pull back and they see the true visage of Jesus as they see him as who he was and who he is. All of Jesus' life on earth really was in disguise, so to speak, was it not? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, this tiny baby born to a virgin in the middle of nowhere in a manger. Although He was God, says the writer of Philippians, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. But He is the one who is preexistent and omnipotent, The great I am, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Alpha and the Omega. To see him in his glory, the one who commands the planets, the one who speaks and angels quiver, the great Jesus Christ speaking with his Father, they see. And they see, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men stood with him. You can can imagine they're tired. They turn their head and all of a sudden they see this beauty of Christ and these two figures, glorious figures talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, they represent the law and the prophets. Moses, the greatest, the lawgiver, and Elijah of the prophets. They are the ones who testified to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and the people don't understand what's happened because Jesus has been killed and they don't realize it's Jesus. And Jesus says, how foolish and slow of heart. Don't you understand what has been communicated from the beginning? And beginning with the law and the prophets, he told them everything that was spoken concerning himself all of the law and the prophets Moses all the way to Elijah have been testifying about this one who is to come Jesus himself said I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it so it would make sense that these two would come before this momentous movement toward Jerusalem see Moses is in the beginning right the writer of the Torah but Elijah is at the end in fact at the very end of Malachi Malachi says that before the great and uh, day of the Lord, Elijah will come. The spirit of Elijah will come to restore where it is. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And Jesus told us that Elijah had come to begin the process of Restoration. Moses was of the past. Elijah was speaking toward the future. Moses died on a mountain. But Elijah was taken up on a mountain. So why are they there now? Because they appear in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Something big is going to happen at Jerusalem. In fact, in just a couple of verses, it says Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. So what they spoke about was his departure. If you you look at the Greek, the word is literally the exodus. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Well, if anyone knows anything about the exodus, it would be Moses, wouldn't it? Remember Moses, who's tending the sheep in the desert? And God appears and says, my people are in slavery... And I've heard their cries and I'm calling you to lead them out. Out of this land of slavery. To a new land. You're going to tell them that they are a holy people. You're going to lead them to Canaan land. We've all seen the movie, haven't we? Where Moses steps before them and leads them through the water as the Egyptian army is on the other side. And they go through. And Moses leads them into Canaan land. Well, they're speaking of an exodus, not that Moses is going to accomplish, but Jesus is going to accomplish. What exodus is this? A much greater exodus than Moses could ever do. For there is a people in slavery, but not Israelites to a foreign power like Rome or Egypt, rather people in slavery to sin and to Satan himself. A world in captivity. Jesus has come to provide a worldwide exodus to his people. To lead them out from the gates of hell. To come to a place, a land flowing with milk and honey. To shalom. To peace with God. To heaven. To lead them not through the water of the Jordan, but rather to lead them through the waters of death and destruction. Jesus is planning an exodus Jesus is getting ready to create the path to salvation. So it makes sense that they would have this moment, that they would see His glory as He emerges, the great King, who comes to rescue His people. Jesus is the true hero upon which all heroes are modeled. And though He is disguised, in a sense, on earth, we must see Him for who He really is. The world would say that he's a great teacher who's come to give us directions on how to live better. This passage would say that's preposterous and ridiculous. They would say that Jesus should take his place on equal footing among the religious pantheon of all the other gods. But this passage would say that's ridiculous. What this passage is communicating us is we need a hero and not any hero but a true hero to rescue us. Not only who has the heart of a warrior, like a Chris Mintz, but the one who has the actual ability to kill death itself. So the question I have for you today is simply this. Who's your hero? Who's leading you in this exodus of life? You may say, I don't have one. I don't need one. I've got this death thing all figured out, you see. If I just continue living and making a name for myself, I'll go on forever. I have one word to say for you. Inconceivable. We need a hero. We need a savior. Who's your hero? In the deepest sense of our hearts, we understand that a relationship with God is what we were made for. So who is it that's going to make that right? If I was to stand before God today, would He receive me? Would He honor me? Would He reject me? What would He say to you? We all have heroes. We all need one. But there is one hero, the true hero. His name is Jesus Christ. And so we must recognize His position. They're not equal, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. He is the dazzling one. He is the king that all of the scriptures have pointed to. He is no mere advisor or counselor or philosopher as all of the other religious leaders have been. Giving us teaching of how to find the way, but rather, He is the way. We must recognize His position and we must recognize His position. That He has come to accomplish an exodus And it is only through His death and resurrection and faith in Him that we will go through the waters of death to life on the other side. This brings me to my second point, that if we recognize His position, we must also behold, uh, excuse me, support His mission. Behold His position, recognize it, we must also support His mission. Notice verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. You got to love Peter, don't you? Whenever you're like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Just think of Peter, you know, he's just so overcome by this moment that he doesn't want it to end. The scriptures say, as they're leaving. In other words, the meeting's over. They're leaving. And Peter goes, wait, 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 wait. wait. What Peter is really trying to do is try to find a way to keep this moment. And so he suggests this ridiculous idea. Let's create these tents, if you will, for each one of you. Well, if you know Jewish tradition, you would understand that he's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles also called as the Feast of Booths. See, so in the Jewish calendar, there was a series of feasts that Jesus inaugurated to remember the Lord and what he had done. In Leviticus through 24 says to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival." Rest, the first is the day of rest, and the eighth is the day of rest. On the first day you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branch and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You are to live in booths to remember how God led you out from Egypt. It was a time both of remembering the past, remembering that when they had left Egypt and they were in the desert, that they made these temporary shelters, or tents, tabernacles to live in and that God watched over them on this journey to lead them to the promised land it was also an eschatological picture it was a, it was a picture of looking forward that God eventually was going to lead them to a place uh, where a true house would be built that they would no longer live in tents but they would have a land of their own And so there was this sense of, we're still looking to that final home. Otherwise, God would never have had them commemorate the feast every year, would he? He'd said, I've already got you there. You can stop when you get to Canaan land. He didn't say that. He said, keep doing it. And so there's this eschatological picture here, where they live in these booths. Okay, we want you to live in the booths here. But the reality is, it's the people who are supposed to live in the booths, not Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Why are they living in the booths? Why do they want to put them in the booths? And the answer is, Peter is essentially saying, we want to capture you. We want to contain you. We want to be here with you but they're missing the point because Jesus is saying the reason I'm going to Jerusalem is I don't ever want you to have to stay in a booth again. My vision is bigger than simply you in an individual small tent. The tent that I desire to create is bigger than simply the temple. The ultimate tent is the earth itself. You ever wonder why the temple is like, has all these pomegranates and palm trees and stuff carved into it? You know, and there's birds like put into the tapestry, the place where God's presence was supposed to dwell. There's even something called the Bronze Sea in the temple. It was this giant bowl, about 18,000 gallons of water. It's a miniature picture of earth itself. And the way they were supposed to decorate these tabernacles with these leafy fronds and palm fronds and fruit was all in miniature of what God was saying that I want to redeem the earth. The earth is my temple. And so the glory cloud covers the people Uh, Peter, James, and John as they speak of this and they're afraid. As Jesus is communicating to them, my glory and my presence is so much bigger than could ever be contained in this little booth. I go so that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth and the world is to be the tabernacle. So do not contain me, but let me go so I might bring you to what you were meant to have. I don't know if you know much about the Feast of Tabernacles, but they had a tradition. And basically you would live in these frond, you know, boots, and every day you would go before the temple and celebrate. You were supposed to have four different types of palm fronds, but there was another thing you were supposed to carry. It was called the etrog. And the etrog is a yellow fruit. It's about yay big. Um and the etrog, supposedly, is the fruit from the Garden of Eden Jewish lore has it it also represents a person's heart and so when they would come on the final day before the temple they would have the, the leaf fronds and they would bring the etrog and they would come and they would set down the etrog right there at the feet of, of uh, you know the temple and they would praise, they would say Psalm 118 and they would lift up the etrog again It was a symbol of, Lord, this um, deceit of my heart, this broken heart, if you will. Our greatest desire is that you would restore it, that you would restore the relationship between me and you. What Jesus Christ is going to do is this very thing, but not a piece of fruit. Rather, the heart itself. That He's going to lay down His life. That we might have a new heart. That He might replace our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Is this not a picture of the world taking their broken hearts to whatever hero will have them and saying, fix this? Jesus can only fix it After he accomplishes his exodus, he must go to Jerusalem. And so we must support his mission. If he is the true hero, then Christ is for the nations. We want him right here in our church. We want to contain him. We want to hold him. We want to be with him. But God's mission is so much greater than simply us here in this place. The earth is the fullness of the Lord's, for he established it upon the waters. It belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so we cannot simply settle for the church when Christ wants the world. That unlike Peter, James, and John in simply wanting to constrain Jesus, we must be a part of what he's doing. What is this Chiba City, Japan thing all about anyways? It's about God's heart for other people. God's exodus that He is accomplishing. That if you are a believer, He's accomplished in your own life. That He's accomplishing in the lives of other people. As we participate in His mission. But the glory of Christ shines brightest in the shadow of the cross. And in the darkness of His tomb. So we must not settle like Peter, James and John. Simply for a little Christ in my little world but rather we must step into His glory to experience the fullness of Him as He lives His life. Well, this brings me to my final point where we hear the voice from out of the clouds saying, this is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Effectively, the rebuke for Peter, James and John's brilliant idea this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Well, the my son section comes from Psalm 2. If you were to read it, it speaks of this one with an iron scepter who will rule the nations, that all of the nations conspire in vain to stop the reign and rule of the king, the chosen one, the son, Jesus Christ. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus points to him as his son, but he also says that he's his chosen one. And these people would have known where that came from. It comes from Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put forth, I have put my spirit in him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42.1 is the beginning of several psalms that we Paul's sections of the suffering servant another one is Isaiah 52 by behold my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted his appearance to be marred beyond human semblance out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge he shall justify many my servant, because he shall bear their inequities And it goes on and on and on about this suffering servant, the Lamb of God who was slain. How can one simultaneously be the Son of God, the beautiful one, and at the same time the suffering servant? I think the reason to conclude as I pull all these things together that we see the glory of the Lord in this very, very place and time is because we not only see the greatness of his person but the greatness of his character the greatness of his decision John Piper said we must see and feel the incomparable excellence of the Son of God incomparable because in him meet infinite glory and lowest humility infinite majesty and transcendent meekness deepest reverence toward God and equality with God infinite worthiness of good and greatness, greatest patience to suffer evil, supreme dominion and exceeding obedience, divine self-sufficiency and childlike trust. Tozer said, O son of man, I know not which to admire most, thine heights of glory or thy depths of misery. We know God not only in the beauty of his creation, but we know God in the excellency of his salvation. The glory of our Christ shines brightest in the shadow of the cross and in the darkness of the tomb. And so let us behold him in the beauty of his person and in the excellency of his mission. I need more than simply a great God who's powerful. I need a God who can get down on his knees with me. And who can say, I'm willing to enter into your pain and experience it. To come alongside you and to lift you up out of the mire, out of the pit. To shed my blood that you might have life. That's a God worth following. That's a God worth giving your heart to. That's a beautiful God. I don't know who you see today as you look at this story. But I want you to see him in all of his fullness. Because when you see him in all the beauty of his goodness and his love and his mercy, you, like Peter, James, and John, will say, don't ever leave me. And the beauty is, he says, I never will. My tabernacle will come across come over you i will overshadow you my glory will be with you forever for the reason i'm doing all of these things this exodus which i have accomplished is that you might be with me that you might be my son and that i might be your heavenly father i hope you rest in these promises as we continue on this journey to the sure destination for which God has called us. Let's pray. Lord, your glory does shine.